I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Stephanie Wynn. She's the host of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. She's the associate producer of No Way Back, The Reality of Gender Affirming Care, and she's a senior fellow at Do No Harm. As a licensed marriage and family therapist in Oregon, she treats adults and couples with an emphasis on serving detransitioners and ROGD parents, which you might have to define later. She also offers consultations for those seeking to improve their understanding of gender issues or their communication skills. Follow Stephanie on X, which used to be Twitter, at at some therapist. Follow No Way Back on X at at 2022affirmation on an Instagram at affirmation generation. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And thank, and thank you for being on the program. Thank you, Derek. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I've been following your work since I was a teenager. So so this is very dear to my heart to be on the show with you. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Um, that's really great to hear. So let's start by talking about the film No Way Back, the reality of gender affirming care. Can you just introduce it and um, so what is it? Sure. So No Way Back, The Reality of Gender Affirming Care is a documentary that I'm honored to be a part of that follows five detransitioners as well as one D-sister through their story of how it was that they came to believe that they were trans, starting from their childhood experiences, which included things like being bullied, being sexually assaulted, and uh, having undiagnosed autism or being gender atypical um, through their adolescence, through the moment that they were introduced to the idea, the concept that, that it's possible to be born in the wrong body, that you might be trans, and that uh, what we call social affirmation as well as medical transition might be the solution to the distress that you've been feeling. So how they latched onto that narrative, the social influence, often through online and peer groups, um, the initial stages of euphoria that you sometimes hear about, you know, that um, high that people get temporarily from all of the love bombing, as well as the mind altering effects of the cross sex hormones, and then the moments that it all fell apart for them, that they realized that medical and social transition did not solve their problems. In fact, it made their problems worse. It caused a whole lot of health problems. So we, we get into the health problems as well as the emotional regret and the impact on families. And the health problems are quite severe. We can talk about that if you like. Um, and so we zoom out then from, from these tragic stories to look at how, how did we get here? And that's where I'm honored to be featured along several other therapists in this field, uh, such as those affiliated with Genspect, like uh, Sasha Ayad, Lisa Marciano, and Stella O'Malley. Um, we follow the work of Dr. Lisa Littman, who is the person who coined the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria. So earlier in my bio, you mentioned ROGD. I would say that the majority of the people I speak to in a week as both a counselor and a consultant are parents of youth who fit this profile that Lisa Littman described in her research of a youth with a rapid onset of gender dysphoria. So that's what we follow in the film, although some of our participants did transition as vulnerable adults. Um, and then we also talk to people in relative fields um, like endocrinology. So uh, Dr. William Malone, we talked to pediatrician, Dr. Julia Mason, who's who's been active in revealing the attempt to suppress uh, the discord in the community of pediatricians. Um, we talked to investigative journalist Jennifer Black, who follows the money and looks at where this is coming from, um, and suicidologist Michael Bailey. So a lot of great voices. And this film was designed with a lot of compassion and wisdom and really sort of with the goal that if there's one thing that you do to try to understand the gender crisis, if you can dedicate an hour and a half, uh, you can watch this film and learn as much as possible. So I'm wondering, and and I'm sorry if this is too basic, but I'm wondering if you can define a few terms in case people don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, just I'm going to throw out, I think, four or five terms if I can remember them all. Detransitioner. Desister, gender dysphoria. Oh, there was two more, but I don't remember them right now. So, can you? Oh, and gender crisis. So, mm. so any one or more of those that you would like to define, yeah. that would be great. 
Sure. So a detransitioner, uh, sometimes called a re-identified person, someone who re-identified with their own sex, or uh, an ex-trans, um, is someone who at one point believed themselves to be trans or non-binary or some other so-called gender identity, um, and went through with some degree of medicalizing that identity, whether that meant that they went on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or had what are euphemistically termed top surgeries, bottom surgeries, things like facial feminization surgeries as well. There's really no limit to the amount of medical so-called interventions uh, that are for sale for these vulnerable people. Um, whereas a de-sister is someone who I maybe thought they were trans or non-binary or who struggled with gender dysphoria, um, but has since desisted without having gone through medicalization. And there's something I want to add to this too, which is that there's actually a missing term. And uh, one of the terms that I sometimes use to fill in the gaps is lost in transition, um, or you might say a transition regretter, because the term detransitioner can be misleading. There's the implication, for one, that this is reversible. And so the term detransition has actually gotten some flack because it, it can be misleading if you think that transition is whatever transition means, that, that it's something that can be reversed. It's not. These are irreversible changes. And sometimes when someone has gone through with these procedures, they do look like the opposite sex or like an androgynous, perhaps in-between person. And maybe that was their original goal at one point. But by the time they start to feel regret, and suffer medical complications, this can bring a lot of embarrassment and shame. It can worsen their gender dysphoria, which I'll also define later. And so I, I want to name that there's this whole other population that sometimes might be referred to as detransitioners, but, but it doesn't quite fit, which are people who now look like the opposite sex. Now they don't pass as their own sex, but they're they're tired of it. They're just over it. And they don't know where they fit in. They don't know where they belong. But they also have extensive medical and psychiatric trauma. And uh, and also they might be broke or disabled. So for them, the next thing isn't to go through with yet more surgeries and procedures to try to look like their own sex again. So, you know, I've met women that look like men and they're, they're over it and they don't want to keep poisoning themselves with these deleterious cross-sex hormones, but they have to find a way to live and accept themselves as, you know, a female with a receding hairline, facial hair, a deeper voice, a flat chest, redistributed body fat, the whole works. Um, so that's sort of my definition of the terms detransitioner and desister, and also this other population that I think we really need to prepare ourselves for as a society who may or may not ever call themselves detransitioners. Now, gender dysphoria is what this is all based on. Gender dysphoria is the uh, clinical diagnostic term that's used in the most recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the DSM-5. It was published in 2013, which coincidentally also happens to be the year that I graduated from grad school. And uh, although I don't have it right in front of me, I could grab it out of my closet if you'd like, because we could look at how gender dysphoria is defined in the DSM. And something I noticed is that the prevalence statistics um, from this book published 10 years ago are way, way, way lower than what we're seeing today. I mean, we're talking rates like 0.00 something percent prevalence of gender dysphoria. And what we've seen is, is an explosion since then. But gender dysphoria is the term used in the DSM-5. In the DSM-4, it was gender identity disorder. The DSM is a highly politicized document, but it's basically any, any psychiatric diagnosis is basically just a cluster of symptoms. And in order to meet criteria for that diagnosis, you have to have so many of those symptoms and it has to have lasted for so long. So for gender dysphoria, the the length of time one has to have it is six months, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things if you're considering making lifelong changes. And the symptoms, the, the criteria that one has to meet are basically that you don't like stereotypes, either that you feel uncomfortable with your body, that you feel uncomfortable with the sex stereotypes that are assigned to your class, or that you, you know, prefer the the clothes or toys or occupations or mannerisms uh, typically associated 
with the opposite sex. Um, and so it's really bizarre that this is a, a psychiatric diagnosis at all, and that it's the only psychiatric diagnosis used to justify such radical medical interventions, although the justification for that is not at all clear um, in the DSM for what that's worth. And then I, finally, so go, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, gender crisis is just a term that I use um, and probably many other people use as well. Some people say gender wars, culture wars, um, gender ideology and things like that. But I, I I choose the term crisis maybe because I am psychologically minded and that's the work I do is crisis work half the time. And I think that this is a crisis. It's a crisis that young people are feeling so hopeless and cynical and naive and desperate that they are plunging headfirst into decisions that uh, set them up for a lifetime of dependency on the medical system. And uh, it really coincides with the psychiatric crisis as well, because these young people are unwell. You know, something I forgot to mention earlier is that gender dysphoria is really, um, you know, it's just one way of conceptualizing distress. And it's, there's a lot of psychiatric comorbidities that it tends to be wrapped up in. The main one main disagreement that I have with the so-called affirming people in my field is that they re they rest a lot of their actions on this faulty assumption that gender dysphoria, when when mixed with other problems, which it always is, is the underlying cause, right? That that if they have depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, OCD, whatever it is, that that stems from their gender dysphoria. And so if you affirm them, if you transition them, if you go through with these permanent changes, that that will somehow resolve their other distress. So I think about it the other way around. I think the distress comes first. The distress can have a number of sources. It can have to do with family dynamics. Um, it can have to do with having neurodivergent conditions. It can have to do with grappling with one's sexuality. Oftentimes, uh, people with gender dysphoria have a history of sexual assault, or they've been exposed to pornography that has traumatized them, especially girls um, that has traumatized them about what it means to be a girl or a woman, you know, that there's all these underlying causes, and then gender or the sex of their body or a particular body part or a particular feature becomes the scapegoat and the target in a way that's very similar to obsessive compulsive disorder, where they get kind of narrowly focused on let's say the breasts as the target, right? And then once they go through and remove the breasts and it shifts, now it's that my hips are too curvy or my voice is too high. So I think of gender dysphoria more as like the tip of the iceberg and the scapegoat. Um, but, you know, unfortunately my colleagues have lost their minds. And so there are a lot of people who think that if a, a young person is globally not doing well, that it must be because they're born in the wrong body. And that if you fix that, that somehow the other things will get better. Um, well, thank you for all that. And uh, gosh, there's so many directions to go. And one of them that I'm thinking is something that Judith Herman said to me about trauma, uh, about how she's, she was talking about the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. And how with PTSD, that's that's often a one-time event. And complex PTSD is if you're raised in captivity or if you're like raised in a domestic violence situation. And one of the examples that she used for PTSD, she said if a woman is raped, this is the example she used, if a woman is raped in a certain make and model of car, that make and model of car might trigger. That, that used to be a word we could use all the time, but I'm kind of tired of it now. But but this was a good use of it that that make and model of car might might take her back to that circumstance, and so it seems to me that if we have a connection between trauma and gender dysphoria, that I mean if if a make and model of a certain make and model of car can make you feel bad, certainly if the sexual assault had to do with a body part, that's even more that one should recognize the relationship between PTSD. And that response, as opposed to saying that that means you're born in the wrong body. Sorry if I'm just rambling on this. And anything no, you want absolutely. to say about that is fine. I mean, what it reminds me of, and and forgive me, whoever's listening, if you remember where I'm remembering this from, because I can't remember where I'm remembering this from, but I am remembering a story of a detransitioner. I don't recall who, 
waking up from having a bilateral mastectomy um, thinking he'll never be able to touch me there again. And that was the beginning of realizing that this was all rooted in trauma. It's it's unfortunately very common. And, and there are so many girls being exposed to such sexualized content at a young age that um, not all of them have to have been personally, physically, sexually assaulted to have been traumatized about what it means to be a woman. Um, and, you know, for some of them, knowing that a friend was sexually assaulted, for some of them, just the culture of the boys around them who have been exposed to this porn and the way boys treat them. I've heard multiple stories of girls, you know, on their first date or their first kiss or their first sexual encounter, a boy choking them because that's what porn has conditioned him to think that girls want. I mean, we live in a really broken society when it comes to sexual relationships. Well, I personally know two people who have told me directly, two women who've told me directly that they gained tremendous amounts of weight specifically because they wanted to stop being constantly uh, groped or harassed by men. And I I would think that I mean, it, it kind of horrifies me that it at this stage of having read pornography and saw that pornography and silence having been published and all sorts of stuff about um and for crying out loud, Susan Sontag's on photography, you know, it's for for a long time we've understood the effects of beauty standards on on women and how that help, helps to cause women to hate their bodies. I, I don't, it seems like we're going a long ways out of our way to avoid looking at the real problems with a lot of this stuff. Um, and there's a double standard in the mental health field because the same people who are promoting transition will pounce on you if you say something they consider fat phobic or body shaming, or, you know, you name it. So there's this real double standard with, you know, we don't treat anorexia that way, right? I mean, it's a common gender critical refrain that any, anyone in the gender critical community has heard this argument. But for those who haven't, um, you know, if a teenage girl comes in hating the fat on her body, but not hating particularly the sexualized parts of her body, if she doesn't make it about her gender, if she doesn't bring up pronouns, then the therapist is not expected to affirm that. Right. So let's thank you for that. And let's. Um, I'm really intrigued by one of the things you said in your very first discussion of the film, which was when you talked about yourself, you talked about those of us who see who and I'm sorry that I'm completely misquoting you. Um, so please correct me. But basically looking at the deeper issues behind all of this and you know you've you've brought those you've talked about those some i'm wondering if you can talk about those more and then there's one more thing i want to bring up so so two i'm, I'm going two directions here i'm sorry for that well no you know my work you know i'm not sorry for that because that's what i do but um the other one is just the thing i think about so often is you talked about how interests not normally associated with that particular sex class or that that particular, you know, so if, if somebody likes something that is abnormal, and I grew up in a different time, I grew up in sort of a golden age. And I love this story that when I was 21 or 22, I went to buy a used truck out of an ad in the newspaper. And the person I took with me was a, a friend who was a honest to goodness, big uh overall wearing lesbian and she and her best she and her girlfriend came with me and the guy you know I'm buying the I'm buying a pickup for God's sake from some redneck and he didn't think twice about the fact that the person who was looking at the at the engine for me to make sure it was a good truck was this overall wearing lesbian. This this was nobody was thinking she's a man because she's because she likes cars. I mean, again, and she was the person I chose to go with me because she knew trucks, she knew engines better than anybody I knew. And how how far back we have gone. I want to say one more thing. 
And then you can go anywhere you want with any of this, which is I was recently interviewing a couple of the women from LGB Alliance, and uh, they were one of them was saying that she believes that we are living in the most misogynist and lesbian hating time of her life. And she was around in the 50s. Mm. So anyway, I, you, can, you can either take any of that you want or take none of it and go whatever direction you want. Well, I do agree that it feels like movement backwards. And as I've been trying to understand this phenomenon and you know, because a big part of the work I do now is consulting. I don't just provide therapy for, you know, individuals and families in Oregon, but I've pretty much opened up. If, if someone wants to pick my brain about this issue, they're welcome to, because there are desperate parents all over the country just trying to understand what is going on with their children. And so I talk to parents and families around the country and just try to come up with whatever insight I can to help them um, understand what's going on with their loved ones. And I also help people on their communication skills because that's the one thing that you can control. You you can't control other people. Um, and um, as I've as I've been trying to understand this, you know, working with people who have, let's say, a trans-identified male uh, guy who calls himself a trans woman, something I've kind of tapped into here is that there's something about this that gives men permission to believe in stereotypes that they're not allowed to believe in anywhere else in our culture. So there's like this hidden underbelly, like you say, of misogyny um, that that rears its ugly head in this way, where men who maybe grew up in a similar environment to you or I, fairly progressive, you know, society with a good amount of gender equality relative to other um, times and cultures, um, you know, men who are expected to treat women with respect in various environments and and who could never stereotype women in their dating life or in their professional life. But when they start identifying as trans women, then all the ugly stereotypes they hold about women are able to come out and rear their ugly heads and they're able to just kind of flaunt it without being challenged by anyone except, you know, those of us in the gender critical community. Um but I do want to say something about this, you know, this discussion of how gender atypical people are being targeted by this, which is that it has expanded over the last 10 years. Um, and I've witnessed this as a therapist because I've been a, been a therapist for 10 years. So I remember, you know, just watching that exponential growth curve grow of young, young people identifying as trans. And it started off as more the gender atypical kids, girls especially. But, so by, but, but hmm? like, by gender atypical, you're meaning like the the woman who came the with me to get the truck, the tomboys. Yeah, the, les the ones who would grow up to be lesbian, the butch tomboys and all of that. Um, but I want to say now there are girly girls getting swept up, up into this too. And there are gender typical boys getting swept up into this too. And so for, for many of the girly girls, they were actually, you know, demonstrating very sort of typical behaviors for their sex right up until whatever that crisis point hit at 12 or 14 or 18, where they go through this brief, intense period of spending a lot of time online or around certain peers and then declaring themselves to be trans. And it's a really dramatic overnight shift. And I think for those girls that ultimately, when they come home to themselves, they will discover they are feminine, not just female. And um, that this world feels like an unsafe place to be female. And I, so I think it, it does tie back to the kind of the trauma um, of porn exposure, sexual assault, and, and the sort of cynical messages that they've been sent about being a woman. And so on that note, though, you asked about the deeper issues behind that. And so I want to say that cynicism, not just about what it is to be a woman, for example, but cynicism about the future. Um, cynicism about, and, and maybe you can weigh in on this from your environmental standpoint, because that disconnection from nature plays such a big role in our loneliness and despair. And I think we don't, we don't necessarily always feel it. I think you feel it consciously. A lot of people, I think, don't feel it until they maybe have a retreat in nature, and then they realize how much better they feel, and then they come back to the city and feel isolated. 
But I think there's a deep cynicism and despair in our culture about whether it's disconnection from the environment or the future of the environment or the future of the economy or whether there are going to be meaningful jobs for them or whether robots are going to take their jobs or whether we're heading into the singularity. I think there's a combination of the fact that things feel so impossible and adulthood feels so scary combined with the fact that kids have been sheltered and coddled so they don't feel ready um, to embrace adulthood and, and combined with the fact that there are trends in child rearing whereby kids are exposed to so much information about the world um, through the internet relative to the experiences they have of building competency in their body. And I will contrast these young people these days with a young woman I remember meeting um, maybe about 10 years ago. No, more than that. 15 years ago, something like that. I assisted a woman I knew leading a rites of passage retreat for some teen girls. And we went to this beautiful place in Mount Shasta, California, um, Headwaters Outdoor School, which um, I'd, I'd love to return there someday. Very cool place um, to, to do this retreat. And um, I remember meeting like a 15-year-old girl who spent her whole summer at the outdoor school. And she'd been going there for many years. She'd been like a problem child in air quotes um, and had a lot of behavioral issues. And then her parents found this place. And then it became like this thing that she loved to do every summer. She had a great relationship with staff. And I remember the confidence and competence and fearlessness and skillfulness of this girl was so impressive to me. And here's someone who's not spending any time online. She's spending all of her time outside, working with her hands, building things, learning skills, helping other people in community, just so much closer to that sort of ancestral way of living. So com contrast that with today's youth who don't have a lot of responsibilities, don't have a lot of physical ways of contributing to and interacting with the world and environment. And so don't feel like they're making a difference in tangible ways. So they don't have that strength built up. And yet, mentally, they're bombarded with information about all the problems in the world, combined with social justice culture and narratives, which can be very cynical and despairing and black and white. So just the mind-body disconnect is greater than ever. And of course, young people are despairing because they don't have the lived experience in their physical bodies of being able to actually change things in some small way that makes a difference in their environment. So then it makes sense when you have this mind-body disconnect and the cynicism and despair that you would end up choosing for for one thing a convenient target which is your own body as a scapegoat and taking it out on yourself and then choosing an impossible goal um changing sex is an impossible goal no matter what you do to try to make yourself look more like the opposite sex every cell of your body is either xx or xy unless you're one of the rare individuals with a chromosomal abnormality which is a different subject but um, they've they've chosen these impossible goals. And I think for many, it's part of kind of a Peter Pan syndrome, like that if you if you make becoming trans the focus, then you can kind of somehow avoid or delay all the other responsibilities and burdens of growing up. And and maybe that in some strange way is comforting compared to just the great wide unknown of trying to figure out who you are and how you can make a difference in this crazy world. Um. That was that was one of my favorite uh, five or six or seven minute rants that I've ever that anybody's ever done on on one of my interviews. Um, so thank you for that. You started off by asking me uh, what you know, saying I might have something to say to this, and I had a whole list of them, and then you were pretty much ticking them off as you went. Um, so it was, that was great stuff. Thank you. And I'm there another. Another thing I'm thinking about this is that, you know, you talked about environmentally, and I, I think one thing I think about a lot is that, you know, the environmental movement has been, for the most part, a, a, an abysmal failure. And in terms of the world's still getting killed, and we're not even slowing the the, the rate of acceleration. You know, it's, it's obviously it would be worse if we weren't doing anything, but but we're not winning. And we have these wonderful goals like, Let's uh, do something about wealth inequality. Well, that's not going very well. And because of peak oil and other things, uh, you know, real wages have been declining since 1973. So, you know, the American dream is sort of, 
even, you know, I think you and I would agree that there are problems with the American dream, ecological and social problems with them. But even that, you know, you don't, it is commonly accepted that, that people today don't have the, the hopes for a better future that their parents and grandparents had. And combine that with some of the parenting style stuff you said. Anyway, the point is that on these bigger scales, what I'm trying to get at is that at one point the left was really about trying to stop, or supposedly we we think was about trying to stop wealth inequality. And that hasn't really worked. And then I always think about this great line by Eric Fromm. Uh, he changed Descartes. I think, therefore I am, to I affect, therefore I am. And if the left has been completely ineffective on environmental, wealth inequality, you know, the the unions are, I mean, the, the, we, don't, we don't really have a labor movement like we used to. And if all of those things have sort of collapsed, what do you have left? And what do you have left is personal purity and then also exactly what you're talking about, you know? And then you combine this with the whole a, a thing, I've, a connection I've never made until just you were saying it is, you know, the, the sort of at one point, you know, I've been railing for years about how the left has become about personal purity and about, you know, whether I do I consume or not. We've defined ourselves as consumers as opposed to citizens who can have a wider range of resistance than just a, a consumer who can either consume or not. And there's been, I take responsibility because I consume toilet paper. I'm therefore as culpable as a CEO of Warehouser. You know, it's all, all this crazy stuff. But you've taken it a step further with it's not only my fault as a person, it's my body's fault. You know, it's like moving even deeper into this. Um, so I just, I, again, you can take this anywhere you want or nowhere. It's just, I'm, I'm just sort of riffing off what you just said, which I just loved. And it reminds me of a few things. Um, so one is I, I had the pleasure of interviewing an elder therapist, elder British therapist named Bob Withers, um, who, whose first experience of treating a patient with transition regret occurred when I was like seven years old. Um, so we have known for a long time, by the way, and that, that is something we should say more often. We've actually known for a long time that changing sex does not make you happier and healthier. We've, you know, and it's been known in the, like in the drag queen community, the gay underground, it's been known for a long time that, uh, going through with these procedures, especially, um, you know, for a man, like having your genitals chopped off greatly increases the risk of suicide. We know that. Um, and what uh, a and surprise so that, that episode. I know, right. That, that episode, I called it the scapegoated body um, transition regret and psychotherapy. And um, he wrote an excellent um, psychoanalytic article where he he used some story called the seventh penis and it was about seven penises on a on a like surgeon's tray that had all been removed and and each one of them had a story and um and one of them was crying out father so this kind of connection to um for for men who do this this really deep complex relationship with their own masculinity this fear that their masculinity is toxic um and and harmful um Yes, and and toxic masculinity is toxic, but that doesn't. It's like doesn't you make said, all masculinity toxic, and it also doesn't make your body the scapegoat. Yeah. It makes the it makes patriarchy that goes back, you know, six thousand, eight thousand years. That's what's toxic. It's not anyway. Sorry, go ahead. Well, there's one other thing that you know when you when you quoted Eric Fromm, and I never heard this before. I affect, therefore, I am. It like really resonated in my body. And it made me think of um, experiences that I personally can relate to and that I've seen in other people. And um, the phrase that comes to mind is the sense of screaming into the void, um, sort of this like painful archetypal childhood experience that some of us had who deeply felt neglected emotionally during childhood. Um, and, and, and I think it can, well, it relates to the sense of disconnect. Um, and so follow, follow me as, as I meander to make my point here, but I'm thinking about all these young people screaming into the void of TikTok, right? So there's kind of this narcissistic, empty, like, I need to see myself reflected on a screen 
and and this this type of like self-centered relational dynamic that's playing out with young people on the internet looking for themselves looking for their identity needing mirroring and it has to be self-centered because you're not actually interacting with another person you're interacting with a screen you're i mean if if you make a tiktok video that by definition has to be narcissistic it's i'm not blaming the kids for this it's it's a it's a narcissistic technology because it's not like sitting in a room talking with seven other people and each one waits their turn and each one responds to the other people in the room. Instead, it's it's you're you're not interacting with a being at all. You're interacting with it with a screen. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Well, and another thing that that reminds me of when you, when you contrast the experience of making a video of yourself to the experience of sitting in a room with other people is that up until very recently all human communication was context dependent. Now, some was more context dependent than others. We know in, you know, in sociology or anthropology, whatever field it is, we know, we know about high context cultures and low context cultures. But still, the only communication that was devoid of context would be that which is produced through the media. So a newspaper could be read by anyone. A TV show could be read by anyone. But in any other situation where one person is communicating it's I'm communicating with this person or with this group in this time and place and context. And the context determines how you speak, how you express yourself. And so what is it doing to young people to be in an online culture that is so devoid of context, where if you say something to one person, you're saying it to everyone. So an example of where this gets into trouble, I've experienced in my own life a dilemma because some of my communication is highly context dependent. So my counseling work, consulting work. Um, when I'm doing a podcast interview, like right now, this conversation, this is context dependent because it's you and me, two people, right? But uh, most of my work is that. And then there's being online. There's, you know, I'm, I'm vocal on X. And uh, what I say is being read by so many different people in so many different contexts, and it's devoid of facial expressions, body language, all of that. And so I want to talk about issues re related to detransitioners because they need to be discussed. But the context of how how I would want to talk to a detransitioner about their experiences, very different from the context of talking to other people like colleagues about the experiences of detransitioners, right? So with detransitioners, I, I want to be sensitive and trauma-informed and um, compassionate and if I'm reflecting anything, I hope that it's giving them some kind of sense of hope and resilience. If I'm talking to my colleagues, especially colleagues who still need to be woken up on this issue, I'm going to be driving home the point of how uh, miserable and anguished and troubled detransitioners are because I'm trying to get a point through of look at what we've done. Look at what we need to take responsibility for. We need to fix this. This is our fault. Um, but if the message that I would send to my colleagues, if a detransitioner reads that message on the social media, they're going to feel personally offended because that's not the message that they need. This is just one example that I experience as someone who's like relatively skilled in the communication department and does it for a living. So if you just think about that as one little situation, then take the fact that we've raised an entire generation in a low context online culture, they're not learning how to code switch. They're not learning how to respond to social cues. There's a great rise in the number of autism diagnoses. And we could speculate how much that has to do with endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment, which by the way, is a common cause. Um, there are certain chemicals, I'm sure you know more about this than me. There are certain chemicals that can um, be implicated both in autism and in endocrine disorders. Um, so, you know, things like PCOS in females, low testosterone, low sperm count in males. And so I would speculate that that environmental factor plays a role in the ROGD craze. We know that people with autism are overrepresented in those with gender dysphoria and those trans identifying. Um, how did I get here? That was a long loop. Lost my train of thought. Um no, it's a it's a great train, no matter where it's going, and uh, there's it's okay anyway because we've got like ten minutes left, and there are a couple more topics I want to hit. That went fast. Um, yeah, I did. I w I would like to do it again if you don't mind. I'd love um, to. And 
one thing that horrifies me. So the the two big topics that I want to still cover. One is do no harm, and the other is um, uh, the uh, silencing of all dissenting voices on this issue. And first, the do no harm. It's this is one of the things that absolutely horrifies me. Is that you know part of the Hippocratic oath is do no harm, and I would think I don't know if therapists have an oath, but if there is, it should include that as well. And it, if we just stick with medical for a moment, I am, I cannot tell you, I words cannot express how horrified I am at the notion of anyone removing healthy body parts. And I got tears in my eyes when you said the thing about the, the, the seven penises, you know, there's a story about that. That's, that is we only get one life that we know of and we only have one body and I have had unhealthy body parts removed and they're gone forever. And I, I, I cannot imagine the, anyway, so, so that talk about do no harm or regret or whatever you want to talk about with that first. Well, this might sound unrelated, but you know, there's there's kind of this common misunderstanding that you have to be stupid to fall prey to a cult, and it's not true. Um, there are people with very high IQs who fall into cults all the time. I've met them. I've been them. And for God's sake, Nazi Germany. You know, it's like there were a lot of very <laughs> intelligent people joined the Nazi Party. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think part of it is this mind body disconnect, you know, that, that, so when it comes to doing no harm, I mean, pe people have asked me about this before, like how, how is this possible that people are removing body parts? And, and it's like, you, you have to get into their heads and understand that there are people who have a worldview that makes it all make sense to them. And they feel just as strongly about this, that, that they're on the right side of history with this as we feel. And, and, and it's rooted in this profound mind-body disconnect, which, by the way, interesting fact I learned on the Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans blog, um, pit.substack.com, um, in one of their articles that was written by someone with a medical background, that trans-identified people actually have less activity in the regions of the brain associated with mind-body connectivity. And that's no surprise, right? And so, you know, so of course I'm thinking holistically thinking, well, then like, let's teach them yoga, right? Like, let's do something, let's get them outside working with their hands. Obviously that's the solution. Um, but there's such a profound mind-body disconnect and, and it's occurring in very intellectual members of the medical and psychiatric communities that says that the the least harmful, most helpful way to treat these people is to indeed privilege this notion of identity, which is entirely an intellectual concept um, and unfalsifiable, to privilege that above the health of the body. I, I mean, it just points to a profound mind-body mind disconnect and to the fact that if you're if you spend enough time in your head you can end up in some really crazy places and you can make anything make sense. And that's actually part of why I think that cults are appealing to high IQ people. Um, with my own experience of being a high IQ pe person who has believed some incredibly stupid things in the past is that when you have an active mind, it likes to chew on things like a rodent. You know, a rodent's teeth are always growing just like our nails are always growing. And if you don't give a rodent enough to chew on, its teeth will grow too big. Um, so I, I think that our minds can be like that. And there are some very smart, but very anxious, neurotic people who uh, need some interesting idea to chew on. And, uh, and they will chew on this, you know, queer theory until the cows come home, and they will end up believing things that are, that are insane. Well, Judith Butler uh, writes about how we need to revisit the prohibition on parent-child incest. And that's, I mean, this is not me making this up. This is 
this is her. And that's gone down a very, very bad road. Did you hear about um, Osama bin Laden is like the latest TikTok trend now? Like the Wokies are all like fans of bin Laden all of a sudden. No. Yeah. That's like... <laughs> no. I just heard about it today. I guess it was in the free press. Why? Do you know? Can you do like a two sentence thing on how this? I don't. I didn't even read the article. I just woke up this morning and my fiance was like, "So I guess the woke people are into Bin Laden now." Um. So there's okay. I want to be really clear. I'm going to say a line here, and I want to be very clear that I am talking about academics. I am not talking about, uh, really anybody else. But R. D. Lang, the psychiatrist, had this great line about how you know children are wonderful when they're born they're fine they're not they're not broken yet but uh through our abuse uh we shall attempt to turn them into imbeciles like ourselves with high iqs if possible um and i i think about that with a lot of you know the people who can rationalize um you know a lot of bright green technologies a lot of the it's just weird academic stuff that we see there is this they're they're they've got a high iq but they just they don't it's like you say, they've, they've been a rodent who's chewing on this thing, and they've lost all touch with, with physical reality. Um, and also, I just want to say, I want to add to this, that I kind of blame, I'm making a joke here, but I kind of blame Aristotle for this, because there was a, he had the great chain of being, which is where you have disembodied God at the top, and then you have angels, and then humans, and then you have animals who, in his mind, didn't really have minds. And then you keep going, and it's the farther down you go to soil, you get no mind whatsoever, and you get sort of complete corruption. Yeah, perfection is only mind, and non-perfection, the opposite, is pure body. And so there's that mind-body split, and I'm really not blaming Aristotle, because he was just articulating something that is very central to patriarchy, which is that we, we privilege the mind, which is this separate thing, and then the body is, is this corrupt, horrible thing that eventually betrays us because we die, as opposed to it's a wonderful unity that, anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm, now I'm rambling. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so thank you for that about, about the, the do no harm. And I agree that they are just as convinced as we are. Um, and then can you talk about, uh, the open arms with which your analysis and say the example of the, or I mean, I'm sorry, the analysis of um, No Way Back has been received that uh, I'm sure that there has have been absolutely no attempts to silence the film at all. Uh, so we, um, a, a great thing happened, which is that through working with our distributor, Deplorable Films, AMC Theaters was going to show our film this summer in something like a hundred odd locations around the country. And uh, I thought that was a very good sign um, of progress. And, um, and of course, activists shut it down. I mean, that's pretty predictable, right? Um, and, and that's, that's all they know how to do, you know, is just scream really loudly. Um, and something we could talk about another time is like the personality disorder connection <laughs> here because the, the, the trans ideology, um, and really goes hand in hand with a culture that's cultivating traits that we used to discourage in psychology. I mean, not, not discourage, but we used to view them as things that you want to help people grow out of and that therapy is meant to treat. Um, so yeah, I mean, silencing is the only tactic they have. They don't, they're not able to come to the table and say, well, I see why you're concerned and here's why we disagree and here's why we think that our, our point makes more sense. And that's that's part of where my field has completely lost the plot and the medical field has completely lost the plot because there, once upon a time, there was an ethos. And I think this ethos still exists in bits and pieces, but certainly not here on this topic. There's an ethos that in a professional field of any kind, um, disagreement is healthy and that if a colleague with you know, a respectable background challenges your expertise on a matter or challenges your conclusions uh, that you've drawn or your ideas about what to do, um, that uh, 
that you welcome any reasonable challenges as as ways to make your argument stronger, right? So you say, oh, I see that you're pointing out holes in my logic. Um, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Let me actually point to a study that responds to that, or here's how we're addressing that, or a good point. We'll think about that, right? That used to be the ethos. And when it comes to the gender stuff, that's just been co thrown completely out the window. There is no healthy professional disagreement. There's there's just um, silencing, name calling. And so, of course, yeah, they got the theaters to shut it down. But I'm, I'm happy to say that, um, you know, one good thing that happened is on D-Trans Awareness Day, local groups of people organized in various places. I got like something like 60, 70 people together here in Portland, rented a venue, um, you know, and it was all completely word of mouth. So we didn't have any protesters showing up or anything like that. Um, I know of uh, friends in Washington and California who also organized local groups and um, a lot of people have been sharing the film online. So I want to thank you for being part of that and let people know where they can watch the film if they're interested, which is at nowaybackfilm.com. And uh, you can use my promo code SOMETHERAPIST for 20% off. So my last question for today is, can you um, tell people, you've just told them how to watch the film. Can you tell them how to find out more about your work in general? Sure. Um, so right now my main website is at sometherapist.com. So that's the website for my uh, blog, podcast, uh, bookshop, my reading recommendations, all that kind of stuff. My therapy website is under construction. Um, so that's at realtalktherapypdx.com, but you won't find anything there right now. Um, I also have a, a link I believe I sent you that's sort of like if you go to my X profile and you click one of those, it's like a biosites collection of links and you can schedule a consultation there if people are interested in. I have just a, an easy way to get on my calendar if you think that you might be interested in, you know, working with me on a consulting or, or counseling basis. Um, but sometherapist.com or at sometherapist on X. I have an Instagram, but I realized a while ago that it brought me no joy to create content for that. So I just stopped. And then my podcast, uh, You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist, is everywhere podcasts are found, including YouTube. So, um, oh, what was I going to ask? Oh, I know. I this, this isn't a good thing to end on, but I think what I would like to do, if you would like to do it, is to interview you again specifically about parents. Yeah. And about the parents who have raised concerns. and Absolutely. And just do a talk, you know, 45 minutes just on that. Of course. Happy to. Okay. So give us give us your last words on this. Give us 20 seconds of of how people can reconnect to their bodies or whatever it is you want to talk about. Isn't that just the stupidest thing ever? <laughs> 20 seconds on how you reconnect to your body. Go outside. Go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe just start by remembering that you actually have a body. Well, in any case, thank you so much for this, and uh, thank you for your work in the world, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Stephanie Wynn. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.